Welcome to Pablo Held Investigates. You'll hear me geeking out here a little in my conversation with master drummer and composer Bill Stewart. I've always loved his playing as well as his writing, so it was like a dream come true to get to ask him a few questions and talk about music with him. We cover a lot of ground here, talking about his records, composing, practicing routines, memorable concerts, his influences and a lot more. I hope you enjoy. And how would you say your harmonic uh, language in your compositions, how, how did you arrive at that? I mean, uh, what, uh, because you have a lot of special sounds in there that I really, really love. Um, you know, I, I listened to a lot of different music, and including classical music, but also some of the people I worked with, I think, influenced some of my writing. Mm. For instance, uh, early on, I worked with Mark Copeland, and, and I, you know, I, I you know, picked his brain sometimes. And, mm. and I think even at one point in the early '90s, I asked if I could, you know, study harmony with him or something. He was like, yeah, I don't know if he was even teaching, but he was, uh, you know, just just come over for an afternoon. I'll show you a few things. So, mm. so of course I did, and and he showed me some some things, and that I could just sort of go with, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, things that I could be working on. Now, I suppose. Uh, I think harmonically, Bill Carruthers as well. Uh, um, Schofield as well. His writing is fantastic, you know. And I, I've gotten some stuff. I mean, not like I'm trying to steal some stuff, but, you know, I played with him a long time and I, sure. you know, I, I like his writing. And, and there's also a piece, for instance, on Snide Remarks that has a chromatic bass line mm. uh, that kind of reminds me of some of the John, th things I was doing with uh, John at the time. In fact, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, I can see your house from here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of that, even oh. though, I mean, the tunes are different, but the, the concept of the chromatic bass line kind of in two, yeah, it sounds kind of like John stuff. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, other people I've been around, like, you know, Kevin Hayes and Larry Goldings, Peter Bernstein, uh, all these guys, you know. Mm. I, I, you know, I'm interested in, in, in their world, not just the drum set. Sure. You know? Yeah. That's how it sounds. No. That's how it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> how is that, that trio with Larry and Kevin? Are you guys going to ever come, come back do a comeback with the, with the trio? Oh, that would be fun. We had a lot of fun with that. I think now we're just, we're doing the, the trio with Larry and Pete, Yeah. which has, you know, been around for a long time and I mean really the thing with Larry and Kevin was only maybe I, I did I did a couple of little Europe tours with that actually and two records but yeah um, the records uh, were a bit far apart now like one of them I think was 2002 and one of them was I don't know and I recorded the second one maybe six or seven somewhere yeah. in there It's not like we did that many gigs, though. Mm. Uh, um, so, so now that we're doing the trio a lot with Peter and Larry, it would be kind of hard to sure to, to do the other one right now. I, th I think I did that in a, in a time when it was the 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 the, the trio that we're doing, which is co-led now with Larry and Pete. Uh, it was known as the Larry Goldings trio then, and and we weren't working that much in that period and so I did the other group because uh, well I wanted to write for it yeah because I wanted to write for two keyboards partly because 
I can play some keyboards, some piano, mm -hmm. and I could think kind of orchestrally to yeah. write to write for two keyboards, which was uh, which was really fun, and and uh, and they sound great together. So yeah, I love those records, man. They're pretty special uh, for me. Oh, thanks. Also, Thank the you. writing on—I mean, I love all your records, but um, there's something about the keynote speakers. The, the first one. I, yeah. I think that's the best one. Mm -hmm. Actually, that, uh, you mean the best of all of your records, um, or the best one of the group, or what? Do you uh, well, I don't. Want, it's hard to pick between your records, but sure, yeah, yeah, I, I think I think if I had to pick, it might be might be that one, and yeah, and, uh, yeah. might be because I th actually, I, as far as my writing, I think I think that group of tunes might be. I don't know. What always okay. was for me uh, the the one the ones that were you know nearest to my heart were keynote speakers and telepathy. There was ah. a time when I was obsessing with uh, both of those, but also especially telepathy was. Oh, yeah, you. I used to tell people that's my favorite record of all time. <laughs> oh. Oh, wow. There was uh, was a time when I was like fifteen, sixteen. I, I only listened to that record, uh, man. Also, what you did with those guys is really, really special. How you wrote yeah. those two, the two horns, and uh, yeah, the writing on that on that record too. Uh, and also, you created a very special vibe. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. it's hard, hard, hard for me to put into words. Actually, the the vibe on both of the records you mentioned is a little bit influenced by the recorded sound on them. I think. Uh -huh. and Those were recorded at in a big room uh, that's no longer there. One of many recording studios in New York City, which are just no longer there. Um, it's called Clinton Studios. It had a the studio A had a big room, high ceiling. It wasn't super reverberant, but it was high ceiling, and you know had some life to it. And uh, in in both keynote speakers and telepathy. Um, we set up the band all in one space mm. and, uh, uh, the late recording engineer, uh, David Baker recorded mm. both of those and did a fantastic job, I think. And, uh, I, I miss working with him. He passed a few years ago, but, oh, okay. uh, but, um, yeah, that, that was a special sound he got. Um, uh, telepathy went, um, That was done to analog, but then of course it had to be transferred to CD. But it was it was actually done to real to real tape. Yeah. And I, you know, for editing, I remember going with David, and you know, he actually had to you know, cut the tape and that yeah. kind of thing. I mean, uh, it was the only time I ever got to go to a tape cutting session, you know, mm. where spliced like that, old old style. Yeah. And then and then when I did uh, keynote speakers. Um, We also, I recorded analog, but had a DAT backup. Um, I ended up taking the DAT because it sounded better, uh, weirdly. I yeah. think something was going on with the, maybe the tape machine by that point wasn't so well maintained. I think yeah. something was weird about the analog later, a few years later. So something maybe with the machine. So. Yeah. But, but uh, the sound on those records, I, I really like. Hmm. Also, Snide Remarks has a special sound. Is it the same? same? That's a different studio. That's Sear. That's all in one room. That's a much smaller room. That's Sear, sixth floor, uh, the old Sear. 
Um, but excellent studio with great equipment and microphones and like a Neve analog mm. board. And, uh, uh, in fact, I just recorded a new record. Uh, uh, it's not out. I, I, um, I have to find a way to get it out. But I recorded in February with a trio with uh, Walter Smith and Larry Grenadier. Great. Uh, and I just mixed with... Um, James Barber at that same studio at, mm. at Sears Sound, so it's making me think of that. But, but uh, yeah, Sears is a little smaller space, so we had to add like reverb and things like that. But, but the band was set up together in that room as well. Mm. So great. I'm I'm wondering what your thoughts are on or how you go about uh, putting together bands mm. for recordings or for touring or both, uh, mm. how you choose a lineup? Because every record you did has a very, yeah, um, there's a very interesting, uh, very, very interesting groups you've put together there. And all are different in a way, although mm -hmm. they seem to come from, a, you know, from your love for them and also from a, from a scene in a way. But, mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me that um, I get the feeling that you put a lot of thought into who you're playing with and who you're writing for also. Uh, yes. In a way, um, writing for their voice, but also challenging them, uh, maybe a little bit, uh, you know, writing for them and also writing for some, putting something in there that they might not uh, be um, associated with every time they're playing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, as far as the putting the putting together of, of the groups, I mean, I guess I've usually put together groups with people I've worked with before in other situations, uh, and sometimes many, many times. So, uh, but uh, sometimes different combinations. Like, for instance, with Snide Remarks, uh, I put. Uh, yeah, that's that. That's a good example because. Uh, um, I don't know if Joe Lovano and Eddie Henderson had ever worked together. I don't before, think so. Yeah. You know, and I don't think Bill Carruthers had worked with any, with, with, with either one of them. And, uh, um, I thought Eddie and Bill might work because I know Eddie can play very freely harmonically because he played with Herbie Hancock in the, in the early seventies with that group. And, you know, Herbie is super free, you know, and yeah. in a different way, in a different way than Bill, but I mean, different sounds, but still like, you got to be on your feet, you know, you got to, yeah. you, you, you have to listen for surprises and, and also Eddie leaves a lot of space sometimes. And that works well yeah. with, uh, with Bill and, uh, and, and Joe and Eddie played, played the heads beautifully together. They played mm. the music, uh, really had a ensemble sound together. Yeah. Uh, I thought so. I lucked out in a certain way, but I had an intuition intuition about how uh, how it might sound. Mm. And um, and also uh, in there was Larry Grenadier, and uh, I knew all those all, all those guys could play free. Also, like they could, I could, we could play without music and make some yeah. music. You know, all those guys can have big ears and can play free or can play chord changes or yeah. Uh, you know, uh, bebop or 
some other direction, you know. So, um, so, so, um, yeah. Um, and and with Kevin and Larry, uh, I had heard that they'd played together once and had a good time playing with each other. I think okay. I heard from. I heard from both of them, you know, <laughs> that, that, yeah, I play, I play, you know, they had a chance to jam a little bit. I was, okay, yeah, good mm. idea. <laughs> I was thinking, hmm, maybe that'd be an interesting trio because, um, I mean, there's other tradition of, of um, organ, guitar, and drums, of course. Uh, it's the famous instrumentation, but I, thought, I saw no reason why the guitar couldn't be another keyboard, you know? Mm -hmm. So... Uh, and actually, I knew of a of a record uh, I had where um, it's a Groove Holmes record, um, huh. American organist. Uh, yeah, the record was from the '60s, but Groove Holmes and Les McCann playing together on something, and and I was walking the bass lines, and and uh, I remember liking how that sounds. So I sort of knew how the the instruments would sound, and, and you know, I guess in church music, there's organ and piano together quite a bit. Yeah. You know? So, and in some so, of the Miles stuff from the end of the '60s, there's some organ and Rhodes. A lot of multiple keyboard. That yeah. stuff's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff with uh, Chicken Herbie or Joe Zawinul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That stuff's really cool. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I check that stuff out a lot too. Yeah. I think yeah, I had intuition about how how things would sound yeah uh, how different musicians would sound together yeah. uh, i also had the experience of working in bands where i thought it wasn't a good combination you know so <laughs> that too uh and i won't you know i won't say sure. which one yeah <laughs> or how but you know yeah. but it happens you know do you have any kind of secret formula when you feel like it's not working out stay relaxed is one thing because i know yeah. that music is not going well i might tend to tense up physically, mm. uh, which you don't want to do I don't know, really on any instrument, but I try to remind myself, stay relaxed, you know? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, for instance, if I have trouble playing with like a bass player, for instance, I used to notice I had, my back would start to go out a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. weird. But, but so now I remind myself, you know, uh, about that. Mm. If I can. <laughs> Relaxation seems to be like a, you seem very relaxed in your, in your playing. And I, I, I was actually wondering that's, if that's something that you've spent a lot of thoughts on or, you know, seems like your whole thing is built on a, on a very good, you know, deep relax, relaxation without being, you know, super loose about it, but right. never seem stressed or uh, you never seem tense. Are uh, pushing in a you know negative way. It all seems very you know um, also thoughtful. Yeah, um, I try to get into get into um, focused. I think the the combination I go for when I play is to be relaxed and focused. Those are the two things. And sometimes you have one without the other. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> on on a on on one of my not so good days, I'm not so relaxed, or I'm not so focused, or I'm focused but I'm not relaxed, or I'm relaxed but not really focused. You know, so that's that's, that's really the combination. Mm. 
that I, I, I try to get. But I've gotten better at being relaxed when I play as, you know, through experience, through doing a lot. And uh, um, I think it's very, actually, I think it's very important for creativity to be relaxed. Yeah. Because if, if you're not relaxed, it doesn't flow, you know? Yeah. And that's why a lot of, for instance, a lot of, one thing a lot of students have problems with when they perform is that they, you know, they get nervous uh, or and that. And that, I think when you're nervous, if I'm nervous, I would tend to rely more on things that I know I can play rather than searching for anything. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like when I'm relaxed, I feel freer to maybe find some new things mm -hmm. and when improvising. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's important uh, just to stay relaxed. Mm. I was almost uh, always amazed by um, your how you sort of build your own vocabulary, sound, and and language in in one thing. It seems like it's obvious that you checked out all the the masters and that they're yes. important for your uh, development and your no sound. But um, in a way, you've you've really uh, moved the whole tradition forward uh, by developing your own, you know, vocabulary. Um, not everybody does that. Uh, it's very special. And, oh, um, and I, I, I admire that. Um, and I, I was wondering how you, how you went about that, how you arrived at maybe thinking like, that's cool what they do, but I'm going to do it this way. You know, it, it, if somebody puts on a record and you're playing, I'll know it in one second or two seconds every time. Uh, not because I'm great at recognizing people. No, because you're great at being unique. You know, oh, <laughs> I'm wondering well. how you how you arrived at that. Also, also in terms of tuning and everything, you know, uh, it's a big topic. Uh, but sure. Um... Thanks. Um, I mean, a lot of my stuff, you know, as far as vocabulary, there's a lot of vocabulary that I play that's actually pretty traditional. Like, you know, a lot of guys play the same things, you know, or before me, uh, musicians play some of these things. But I drew from a lot of different sources, um, and some major ones, some minor ones. I don't mean key, key color. I mean, you know, major sure. figures and and people who maybe influenced me just a little bit in one way. Uh, so I listen to a lot of music, a lot of drummers, and, uh, um, you know, I, I'd cop some of their ideas. Some of, sometimes, but I would try to find different ways to play ideas, whether it was somebody else's or something that I came up with. Um, um, you know, just um, to do it a little differently. Um, um, one, one thing in, in terms of what you said about recognizing my sound, some of that is, is, is maybe just actual, the sound of it, the sound of the symbols and the set and, uh, you know, the touch that I play with, um, uh, all, all kinds of things go into that and tuning, um, and, 
and my taste and what I like. You know, mm. people who have maybe unusual taste might have a more tend to tend to find their own sound easy, more easily than you know just only studying sort of the accepted people on their instruments and this sort of thing or whoever whoever everyone else is studying you know um sometimes i'd try to play things that i heard other drummers play and i i couldn't really play them so i'd find another way to sort of play them and it sounds mm -hmm. different um something that's different about my playing than some of my heroes is, is that i play a match script in the left hand for instance my left hand is weird i don't i wouldn't recommend my left hand to anyone but uh, you know, it sounds different. Yeah. It sounds different, but it doesn't sound like other match script players because I do some things to, to, so it doesn't sound like that sometimes. Uh, and it has to do with, uh, you know, angle of the stick and this sort of thing. Um, mm. You know, the, the type of symbol I like or symbol sounds I like, uh, what I, you know, how I tune my drums. I think that's part of maybe why you could recognize me but and I didn't change that stuff up all that much you know I don't have like a drastically different sound on one record than another yeah, it's true it's slightly different you know I'm not I'm not opposed to that actually I'm not opposed to completely changing it up it's just that I don't usually do that mm -hmm. I'm sure you you also have these kind of experiences maybe early on your development but also maybe very recently where you see a musician that you admire and that moment that might be just a second or two seconds but that stays with you forever and that actually is one of those seeds that we talked about before that be can become something big mm -hmm. do you have a couple of those that you always go back to in your mind like uh, that you're still feeding from or um, that you'd like to share like important memories of seeing somebody or hearing putting on a record at a certain time or like Something oh, sure. Wow, yeah, uh-huh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I can think of a lot of, you know, great music I've heard in clubs and concerts, and yeah, I can I can definitely share some of that. Um, I, I think when I first came to the, well, definitely when I first came to the East Coast, I went to uh, William Patterson College, which is in New Jersey, and, and I had arrived there from Iowa, and... I don't know, must have been on my third, second or third night on the East Coast. And I remember, you know, riding in with someone to, to hear uh, Joe Henderson, for instance. So that was the first thing I heard in New York was Joe Henderson at Fat Tuesdays. Wow. I think it was with, probably with Al Foster. And I mm. think it was that one and, and maybe, maybe Rufus Reed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but, uh, from there, yeah, I remember, geez, I remember like the Vanguard, for instance, sitting, I remember one occasion sitting next to Tony Williams, hi-hat symbol. And I remember one occasion sitting next to Elvin Jones, hi-hat symbol. And I remember other times sitting next to Billy Higgins, wow. like from, from almost a side view because, uh, I don't know if the drummers, I don't know if they let people come quite so close these days but the audience could if you got there early you could get a seat where you were almost on stage you yeah, know? yeah yeah so i remember for instance going to to see uh elvin's band this was also pretty early when i was in on the east coast and, and i remember he sat down and he hit he hit his snare drum and he didn't 
like it. And, and he, 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 I was sitting there and he, he took the snare drum and he, and he, he handed it to me and said, here, have a snare drum, you know? <laughs> I was like, okay. But he had to get another one out of his trap case. Something was wrong, but he had a spare, yeah. I think. But that was funny. And then I, I sat next to, to Tony also. I think it was the first time he played in New York with his quintet, with um, wow. Mulgrew yeah. and Wallace Roney and those guys. Yeah. And uh, so I sat uh, next, to, uh, next to Tony's hi-hat cymbals. And I remember that night he... He, he had some heavy 15-inch hi-hat cymbals, too. Mm. I remember, he was, he, was, he was going around. And I remember he, got, he was spinning the cymbals to get him in a spot where he liked them better, you know, why they came together in a nicer yeah. way. He spin, and he got his finger caught in, the, in between them. And, yeah. and he was like, oh, and he's in pain, you know. Yeah. So some of these experiences. And, you know, the music on these occasions was, was great, too. So, mm. But I remember all a lot of a lot of stuff like that did you go see uh, tony when he played with herbie and ron carter at the village vanguard in the 80s yes i was there have yes you, wow I because i have there. i have one bootleg of that oh can you can you send it to me <laughs> <laughs> sure no i thought you would have it too but, um. i didn't have it i was there one night oh man yeah i i really remember that and that was also soon after i That was my first year out here too, and I remember uh, my friend and I we got tickets and and we we went and we stood there early, yeah, uh, you know, to got in a line and stuff. Yeah, I do I do I do remember seeing that. And uh, what kind actually, of kit did Tony play in the, in uh, there? W would you play his regular set from when he same one he always had from nineteen on? the big the big one, the yellow know, the, one. Yep, twenty four inch bass yeah. drum. All those drums, those cymbals. But he played differently in that room. I th I thought, you know, than on those big stages. When I heard the the sound quality of the of the bootleg is not that great, but I can hear him not hit as hard, like yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Actually, the night I was down, uh, you know, I heard a bootleg of it too, and I don't have it, which is why I asked you about it. But yeah, sure, I'll, I'll send but, it to you. But <laughs> that'd be awesome. But. Uh, uh, I, I was surprised at how great the bootleg I heard sounded. I thought mm. it was excellent. And and but the night I was down, and I was you know a big fan of of I I thought maybe they weren't having their best night or mm. something. And Tony looked pissed, mm. unhappy, very unhappy, and mm. I don't know why. Jumpsuit? Yeah, I think so. Maybe <laughs> I think maybe so. And uh, but he looked. He looked unhappy, and and there were some drum cases in the back corner, uh, and he just the whole break he sat at the back of the stage behind these cases and talked to anybody. So I don't know what was wow. going on, but he his body language was like he was pissed, and and he was playing like actually he wasn't playing loud, which was unusual for yeah. him, and uh, like you say, and he's playing spaciously, but it was almost like he wasn't trying also. Mm. The night down it was interesting I, uh, it, as I you know maybe if I heard heard that night now I'd, I'd hear it differently mm -hmm. but at the time I thought this is one of their least magical nights like that. <laughs> you know, that, that can be a lesson which, too which is which you know they on their least magical night they you know they sure. sound great you can't take you can't take that for granted but <laughs> yeah, yeah but you know we all 
you know, little ups and downs. But but I'd like to hear that other night. I hope that's the another night. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see. You let you let me I'll, know which I'll, one it is. I'll never know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I can't remember the sound of it. <laughs> it's so great that they returned to a club like this in the '80s, where they were like, you know, uh, yeah, pop stars not, in a way. Yeah, and not too long before that, it was before I think it might have been a year or two before I came uh, uh, to New York. Uh, Keith Jarrett's trio also played there with Gary and Jack. Wow. They, there was all there's also a week I think that they played. Wow. There. Yeah, That's that might cool. have been, might have been '80. I think it was after they did those the first of their trio records in 83, 84, yeah. somewhere in that time. It's nice to hear them in a not reverby sound, right? Like the, the Blue Note uh, recordings, oh. they're, they're cool uh, too, right? Yeah, yeah. Ooh, yeah, Autumn Leaves on there. Yeah, Keith. yeah. Ooh, intro, woo! Yeah, yeah. yeah but, uh, and you were asked, you sh uh, I, could, I could go on and on about Please other do. things. I saw. Please do, um, if you feel you like know, it. Uh, I remember seeing... Um, Yeah, a Song X concert at Town Hall with Ornette and Pat Metheny and Charlie Hayden and Jack. Uh, that was great. And uh, Somehow my friend and I were able to sneak backstage. I don't know how we got back there with no credentials. It probably wouldn't happen now, but yeah. well, we were able to talk with Ornette and it was super nice. And wow. What did you ask him? Did you ask him anything? I think... My my friend who's an alto player, he was asking more, maybe asking something, but he he was when was actually asking us stuff. It was mm. he was interested in us. It was interesting. It was, he was like, so what what do you do? Yeah, <laughs> that was cool. He was really nice, uh, and I didn't know anybody in the band, you know. So at that time, yeah. So uh, uh, and I, I remember a particularly memorable version of um, the turnaround. Mm. And, and um, Ornette and Charlie and Jack, I think they may have just, they might have just played trio at that point. Mm. I think it was trio. That, but uh, that, was, that, was, that was a great concert. Uh, um, uh, let's see. You know, I've heard so many things. I mean, you all heard a lot of concerts. And I've heard, you know, classical things. I heard, uh, I mean, for instance, something completely different. I heard... Uh, Uh, Ligeti's opera, wow. in, uh, the Grand Macabre. Oh yeah, yeah I yeah. heard that. In, I heard that in I don't know Lincoln Center. I think it was. Uh, you know, in New York, you can hear all kinds of stuff. You know, Messiaen organ concert. You know, we're uh, um, hearing. I mean, even older, older thing. I remember hearing Illinois Jacquette's big band and mm. things like that. All, all, you know, great stuff. All, all kinds of different great stuff. So, mm. um, was there like a time where you exclusively, or maybe not exclusively, but very obsessively followed one drummer? No, uh, well, like followed him around in town or tried no, to see every concert. No, because for me that's getting in a little a dangerous area where you're if you if you have one if you have main one main idol and you're trying to be a protege or something, I always felt like it would be hard for me to to find my own sound if I did that too. Yeah. You know, because I think if you draw from different sources, then that combination of things is part of what makes makes you sound the way you are. Whereas if you try to imitate any one person or try to play like them 
you can never do a better job of that than they can. So, <laughs> so you're always catching up. So, yep. um, so I try to avoid that. Yeah. I mean, I doesn't. I wouldn't follow. I would follow several guys around, uh, but you know, or go to their gigs, but you know, not always the same drummer. Mm -hmm. How was it then? A couple of years after you arrived there, and you've. The first, you said the first thing you heard was Joe Henderson, and then yeah. uh, let me see. Uh, and this record came about, and you uh, played with him. <laughs> How was that? Ah, uh, that wasn't. Yeah, well, that would have been. I mean, that was. Uh, I'd be about four years later. Oh, actually. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was great. Uh, yeah. Um, I had met Kevin not too long before that record, and we started playing together. And uh, uh, it was great to play with Kevin; it always is. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, he got an offer to do a record for uh, Jazz City, uh, which was a Japanese label at the time. And uh, I had already done a record for them. My first record, uh, "Think Before You Think," was done for them with Mark Cohen. The Mark, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, um, so Kevin got an opportunity to do one as well, and uh, you know he's thinking about we could call. I might have to call Joe Henderson, so he did, and uh, Joe agreed to do it, and um, they agreed on um, you know price and this sort of thing. And, It was a funny story, I think, because Joe said he was going to uh, use his frequent flyer miles and buy his own plane ticket. But then when it came time for the date, that was not the case. Oh, okay. <laughs> to get him a ticket. It was a little <laughs> funny, funny business scene. But so Joe shows and uh, and uh, we did the date. We were all in one room in a real basement studio. Uh Not, not a particularly good sounding room, but again, David Baker made it sound. I like the pretty, sound, yeah. Sounds yeah, good. pretty nice. Well, there, there was an excellent piano there at that studio mm. on Green Street. Um, a lot of the pianists uh, liked it, a Steinway of some sort. I'm not sure. But, um, so, yeah, uh, it, was, it was great to play with Joe, and that, that record came out really nice. In fact, I did a little playing with Joe later. Might I have a recording of that? Mm, I don't know. It wasn't released on a on like a CD. Uh, oh, okay. But what kind, know, what band was it? Well, um, there were. I did a few gigs with Joe in the mid to late '90s. Not too many. I did a I did a trio gig in Kentucky with him and George Mraz, and I did uh, uh, after he did a record Porgy and Bess for Verve. I oh yeah, a, right. Oh, I have that. Yeah. Just, A few of those gigs, you know, uh, there was uh, a couple in Bern, Switzerland, and uh, oh yeah, I've Mount seen, I've seen that, yeah. One in Mount Hood, Oregon. So, do you have a recording of the trio gig from Kentucky? I have a cassette of it. It's a terrible sounding cassette. It's ah. hard to, very hard to listen to. Uh, yeah, it's difficult. Okay. <laughs> I always loved about this record, El Matador. How I'm. It's hard for me to put this into words, but Joe isn't really f like the featured star of the record. He's part of the ensemble, 
but you guys yeah. were super young, you know, yeah. and yeah. it seems to me, and I'm not saying this in a negative way, that Kevin really put him in some kind of spotlight. You would normally maybe put him into like featuring the great Joe Henderson or something. Yeah. He's sort of, uh, and also this is, this sounds maybe too negative, but he disappears into the band. You know, he fits really into with you guys, you know, and I, I always, great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I always love that about the record because, because it, he seems like he really got into the music. He had to learn the stuff, you know, and, Then he mm. took his solo and listening to everybody else, you know, it seemed very, very like a collective thing. And I really loved that about it. Yeah, I, I, I did too. And and uh, mo most of the tunes he and Steve play together on, Steve Wilson. Yeah. And so they get an ensemble sound together. But I mean, Joe was on a lot of those Blue Note records where there were multiple horns, you know, where he, you know, played in ensembles and you know, knew how to blend in. And uh, also, I don't know if you've seen any of the stuff um, that's um, either recording or on video with Joe with uh, the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Orchestra. Mm. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's another interesting place to, to hear Joe where he's just, you know, not the featured, yeah. featured star all the time, but, you know, gets his moment, of course, to, to play. But um but it's playing in the section and you know that kind of thing um but yeah i remember joe at that session on matador yeah uh he wouldn't he wouldn't he would stay in the studio like if anyone went in the control room to listen to a take he wouldn't go listen to it mm. the other thing the other thing that was noticeable when listening to the takes of of i remember of that session was that He's a first take kind of guy. Like he would play best solo on the first first run through. In fact, I remember there was a rehearsal day where we were getting sound where we didn't weren't planning to use any of it, and I think didn't. But I think there's maybe some Joe on there that was even better. Actually. Oh, okay. Actually, there's a ballad on there which is based on a Hindemith tune. Yeah. The one I, like I mean. That. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, Joe has, I don't know if you know, but there's a, he goes up for a high note and he has like a Stan Getz moment. Mm -hmm. he, he, he admired Stan Getz. I think he did, yeah. yeah. But he has Stan, he goes up and he hits this vibrato in a certain way and it just really sounds like Stan for one note. <laughs> yeah. That was interesting. Yeah. Did you, when you play with somebody like that, are you the kind of guy that would ask him all kinds of questions? Uh, Joe is very soft spoken and uh, no. No, I wouldn't. I don't. I don't remember much of any conversation other than, well, "Hello, I'm honored to play with you" or something. Yeah. You know, <laughs> something okay. along those lines. Mm. Uh, I don't. I don't remember a lot of conversation. Also, the gigs I did with him, uh, there was, I think, nothing said before or after on any of those gigs. And he shows up, you know, show up right before the gig and be gone right after yeah but i mean you know you play with so many long-standing bands where i where i assume it's a different scenario when you play with them before and after a set you know so what happens with you when you're in a situation like that playing with somebody like that and then he doesn't say a word before or after how do you treat it 
it's it's a strange feeling. Uh, it's you know it's cryptic. It's uh, you know you don't know what it, you know you don't know whether you did a good job or yeah. you didn't do a good job. You don't really know. <laughs> but I you know I, it wasn't it wasn't just that way with me. It was that way with pretty much most people, as I understand it. And I'm sure I'm sure other people got to know him and have conversations and, and things, yeah. but. I, I, I did not, and, and here again, I didn't play with him very much, really, just yeah. on a few a few occasions there. I think for a long time, I've I've known a photograph of you as a very young man sitting next to Dizzy Gillespie, and he kind of moves his hands, and he doesn't move them because it's a photo, but it yeah. seems like he's in motion or something, and it looks like mm -hmm. a drumming motion. Yeah. So I'm wondering... What what did he tell you? Do you remember? He had he had just heard me play something. I think he gave me a compliment. He said I had good time. Hmm. And but then we were talking about time, and he must have been talking about something, you know, symbol or or whatever. Um, uh, I I don't remember. You know, I saw the picture. He was late. Much of your now they had it at Stanford. It's from Stanford Jazz Workshop. Mm -hmm. yeah. It was, just, it, was a, it was a brief moment and someone caught it on camera. Uh, I didn't have a lot of interaction with him and, hmm. you know, I think he wandered into my ensemble and listened and said, made a few comments and left, you know, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, what are your thoughts on, I mean, how did you arrive at the impeccable time that you have? Uh, do you spend a lot of time time on this or um, how, how do you how do you work on that it's a continual process you know I'm still working on it uh, not only well not only to play steady time but thinking about how it feels also yeah I do I do work on playing for instance in time in tempos uh, and certain tempos I noticed I had more trouble with than others uh, Like there might be a tempo where I noticed that the time would creep up a little bit or something yeah. like that. And so, so then I have to work on that tempo. You know, I, I started, I've continued to do that through my career, actually, uh, to, to work on, you know, if, 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 if I heard some recording of myself and didn't think I was quite nailing the tempo, there's, there's a tempo to practice. There's, there's something to practice that afternoon, you know, mm -hmm. uh, let's say 100, 160, beat, 160 beats a minute or whatever. Uh, um, what I started doing uh, sometimes is I would set a tempo, like on a metronome, uh, listen to the tempo for a second, turn off the metronome. Would you put it on like, two and four or where do you, would you put it? I would, no, I put it on quarter notes usually. Mm -hmm. Unless it's a fast tempo, I might put it on half note. Yeah. Probably probably on one and three, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, uh, but I'd, I'd, I'd play the tempo, and then I'd turn the metronome off. I just want to hear what the tempo is. And then I would play for 10 minutes, 15 minutes by myself, and turn it back on. Yeah. You know, see if something happened to the tempo. Yeah. Um, because I think uh, when people only practice with a metronome they're they're kind of using it as a crutch like you know? being too reliant on it 
dependent yeah. on it. Yeah. So, but there's something different you can learn from practicing with a metronome, like, you know, something like, well, I rush triplets or something like that. You know, you can maybe learn something from that too, but, uh, but one way I'd work on that is like, yeah, like I just said, so mm. that's one thing. Uh, and I practiced with a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of time by myself, uh, just play time or, uh, but also I played a lot with recordings and I still practice some with recordings because it gives me yeah. something to play off of, you know. Yeah, me too. And if I can't think of something to, to, to practice, then I can always play with a recording and it's fun, you know, and I don't have to take it too seriously. I can play. I can play a totally different tempo against the recording or something too. Mm -hmm. I, there's, you know, no real limitation. So, and it's a way um, to play with the grades, <laughs> you know, that's true. It's nice. They to won't really music. react, but, uh, no, they, no, you can, uh, you can try to react uh, you know, right, right. yeah. So I love, that. I love that too. I've done that a lot. And, uh, well, I actually, yeah, piano, you could, it's like some of the old recordings, you could, you could like turn the, uh, stereo to one side and, you know, not hear the piano player or mostly not hear them, yeah. you know, that'd be cool. Records. But I had to be careful about that. because you know, a lot of like records speed up, slow down. True. Yeah. I don't want to like develop bad habits. So I actually, I sort of stopped playing with records like For a while, I, I stopped. Well, I'm not going to play with four and more because this, this stuff speeds up. Yeah, you know, yeah. I don't want to get in the habit of doing that. You know, even though they're exactly together. Yeah, yeah. So, um, or for Life at the Blackhawk, for instance, the tempos slow down. Mm. But actually, medium tempos, I think, especially early in my career, they might tend to creep up slightly. So I started practicing with Blackhawk because this stuff slows down. So it was actually taking <laughs> me, me the other way. That's cool. That's so cool. Like, okay, let me see if I can play like this, you know. So, <laughs> so uh, uh, you know, stuff like that. Like if I'm just practicing, like, say, swing tempos, I probably played with milestones a million times, you know. Yeah. And not trying to play all of Billy Joe's stuff or anything like that. Play, improvise, you know, play yeah. some other stuff. And also maybe play a little bit of the Philadelphia stuff if I feel like it or try to, I, I can't really make it sound like that. But um, yeah, so, but, but the good thing about that record is that um, the tempos are pretty spot on. Mm. And uh, also the drum solos and the fours and the trading, you can... I mean, it's the time is so steady through those. So I know that if you know, I can I can actually trade eights on those things and right. for the trading. And I I know if I play accurately, I'll come out on one because uh, Philly Joe is so steady in his, his solos at that time. You know, yeah. like the time is just like rock solid. So yeah. So that was a good record to, to play with, and, and a bunch of different swing kind of tempos on there, mm. fast, slow, you know. Um, but I practiced with ah, all kinds of records in my collection, yeah. and also other kinds of music, um, you know, Aretha Franklin records, you know, uh, kind of different things. Mm. Maybe we can talk about a couple of drummers. Uh, 
your relationships with them or your um, experience listening to them or what you took from them or whatever, whatever comes to mind. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on Jack Dijonet? Ah, Jack. Well, Jack's definitely one of my biggest influences. Uh, uh, and I've gotten to know Jack as well um, in, in you know, recent years. Um, Jack, to me, um, like if you think of like all the, the great jazz drummers, you know, after chronologically, like after Elvin and Tony, um, I, I, I say that Jack would be slightly after them, definitely after Elvin. And actually, he's older than Tony, but Tony appeared on the scene, uh, I think, a little earlier. Yeah. But only by a couple years, maybe, as far as being known internationally or whatever. And um, I definitely think of Jack as the, you know, the most important drummer after at least to me, but I think maybe in general, in terms of influence in that tradition, after those guys, after Elvin yeah. you know, and Tony, and and uh, and also maybe conceptually, I don't know if the most advanced, but very advanced conceptually to me, as far as what he does with his limbs and different things. Yeah. Uh, first Jack I heard, I think, was on a record I got, or maybe my dad bought it. Uh, it must have been I must have been eight or nine years old, you know, uh, Straight Line by Freddie Hubbard. So, mm. uh, uh, so uh, that that was where it started. And then I remember buying when I was a little bit older. I remember buying New Directions in Europe on ECM mm -hmm. and uh, loving the sound of you know uh, the drums and and Jack's playing on that. And, and it just sort of went from there. Mm. I love his playing with, say, piano trios as well. Uh, very, you know, Jack can play, but he could play, like, you can get a lot of sound out of the drums, but he also knows how to, to play in very sensitive situations. Mm. Where, you know, brushes or, uh, you know, he can play a lot of stuff, or he can leave a lot of space. Uh, um, great listener. Mm. Really good listener. And, uh, you know, listens for the spaces and the music and, you know, play over the bar line, but in a way that works, you know, where other people try that and it might not work. Yeah. So, but that's listening and ears and some intuition. You know, I think in terms of sound to influence me, uh, you know, the clarity of each limb, mm -hmm. to, to hear each limb clearly. Mm. Whereas some um, other drummers, and I'm not, I'm not, this isn't a slight to them. Uh, for instance, some drummers don't do all that much with their hi-hat. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it sort of blends in or they mostly play it as a timekeeping device. You know, and I've gotten to know Jack as well and I've been to his house and I, I know his family and he's yeah. been super nice. So, uh, so that's been... Yeah, actually that, uh, maybe to deviate a little bit, uh, that clarity is actually something also that I wanted to talk to you about because I'm also admiring that a lot in your playing, the clarity to really hear where every note is supposed to be, you know, you, there's no question about anything mm -hmm. except how do you do it, <laughs> uh, you know, um, 
Jack Jack is a is a is a role model in terms of that for you. But how how about how about somebody else like uh, Roy Haynes? Uh, he has well, something like that, a similar you're, thing. You're 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 on you're on my trail with this stuff because uh, these are the guys that that have influenced me the most. You know, mm. and I would say if there were three people as far as the kind of stuff that mostly you've heard me do, the the probably the biggest three are Jack. Uh, Roy and, and Tony. Yeah. Williams. Those, those are, and I'm influenced by a whole other, a lot of other people too, but, but those guys in, in particular, I think, you know, I, I, I know that I play a lot of their stuff. <laughs> well, it, it, that's how our tradition works, right? I mean, yeah, I guess, we, I guess, yeah, I know, you know, yeah, sure. And, and, They got stuff from different places, but and also from each other, you know, because Jack Dijonette, yeah. uh, he he admired Roy Haynes and Tony, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and uh, Elvin, a big, big yeah. influence. I think in the beginning, Jack sounded to me like a mixture of Elvin, Tony, and and Roy. You know the. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. Like when you would hear in like '66 or those records with. Uh, Jackie McLean or something, you know. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jackknife. Yeah. 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 Actually, I heard a track of that recently. Yeah. I heard that track. Yeah. Yeah, Jack does sound a little. He sounds a little like a little toward Roy on that to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. Yeah, but but not you know not exactly, and and he already had, you know, a lot of his own sounds. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder where these symbols are that he played like in the mid '60s till. I don't think he has them. No. I don't think so. Yeah. I always liked those. You know the the yes. Those were probably those were probably old K's at that time. If it was mid '60s, I don't know if they were K's. But actually, you know, you know the record "Power to the People." Oh man, that's my favorite Joe Henderson record. Yeah, mine too. I think. Um, I think that's a different symbol by that point. Mm -hmm. That's a different one. Or if you've ever heard also the, the Chikoria record, Sundance. Man, that's the complete is sessions. Uh, I, I know them as the complete is sessions. Uh, uh, it's, uh, it's in several different yeah, volumes. But Sundance different. is one of the songs on, on there. Yeah. 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 yeah I, that's the that's my favorite that's... Chick record. That's my favorite Chick. <laughs> Right up there with 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 mine too. I don't know. I've yeah. It might yeah maybe yeah. I have a I have a you know of course you would have to say now he sings now he sobs is you know is an important record. That's maybe, that's maybe the the yeah. Go ahead. But go I have ahead. to say the complete is sessions Sundance. That's the one that's closest to my heart. You know that's. No, Mike. I remember I remember talking to Chick briefly about it and. And he remembered that the that the heads were messed up. You know, he yeah. says, "Yeah, you know, the heads were sloppy or something." That's what he. Yeah. yeah that's, I think that was the, the, his response. But, but I don't uh, care. I don't care. I love I that how I, how messy they are. I love that. He has some beautiful writing on there. Yeah. It's that tune for uh, Bill Evans. Song for the wind. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Great, I transcribed the song. Great writing on the whole record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sundance also is a cool tune. Little. Hippie, hippie-esque, just a vamp, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a, that's Hubert Laws, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
and Woody Shaw. Yes. Yeah. I wonder if this if this was the only time Woody Shaw and Jack DeJohnette played together. Oh no, maybe on the Blue Note in the eighties there was the Blue Note celebration. Yeah. I yeah. think they played a song together there. Yeah, I But think so too. I don't know if if there is another record with Woody Shaw and oh the Zavino with the Zavino face on it. There's some Jack on Jack plays on the record and Woody Shaw too. I think. Okay, I don't have that one. I know that I know that I've seen the record a million times and I saw it. Oh, I think yeah. you'd love it. You know, also in terms yeah. of two keyboards, it's Herbie yeah. and Zavino. You know, and it's the. F yeah, I think I have heard it, but it's just been, you know, sure. I never owned it, so sure. it's not one I, you know, really have up there. But I think Zavino preferred this In a Silent Way uh, version to the the Miles version, you know. Oh, okay. Because it all, has all these, these chords in there and beautiful different sections that you don't hear on the Miles recording. This is a great record. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering what you're actually checking out these days. What mm. what interests you and what is the last thing that you said? You know, I always like when somebody said I uh, says I can't stop listening to that record. You know, and um, something that you that really sparks your Im imagination or whatever you feel like sharing. I mean, I could tell you what I was listening to yesterday, but I you know I don't know if it was sure. What what was it? Oh, let's see. What am I? Have you have this? You have this as uh, yeah, that's a good one. Oh, that's, if you get the you got to get the CD version because it has this kind of a lost session with Herbie Hancock. Yeah, I, isn't yeah. also Herbie on? Her, yeah, Herbie is on the he record. Was never, he was never on the original record because they didn't release the session. Okay, I, I have the session with Herbie and I think Roy Haynes, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> some of it's really good. Some of it's a little messed up. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, but it's very interesting listening. Uh, so enjoy that, and of course, Herbie and Roy Haynes are two of my favorites. So yeah, but there are not a lot of records where Herbie and Roy Haynes play together, right? I can think of one other. I, I have uh, Jackie McLean. It's time. That's the yeah. That's a great that's record. A, yeah, uh, yeah. It's a little, a little uneven, but yeah, yeah. The horns are really out of tune. But. Yeah. That's sometimes, <laughs> you know, that can happen with Jackie McLean, you know. For sure. I know that, that record, uh, uh, maybe more so. But, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think I kind of like this one more, the Roll yeah. Kirk one. I have to uh, go back yeah, to that I, one. I like, I like the, that one's got moments, too, the, the Jackie one. I like it, too. Do you know that bootleg from, uh, I think it's Massey Hall, Herbie... Dave Holland and Roy Haynes and uh, Roy Hargrove and Kenny Roy Garrett. Haynes. Oh, uh, no, I never heard that. Uh, playing Charlie Parker tunes. Oh. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool to hear them. No, I, never I think heard it's that. 2003. Ah, okay. It's another cool example of Herbie and, oh, you know. They, they played together then. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they didn't play together much. Yeah, I guess, you know, in the 60s, uh, I'm surprised they didn't play together a little more on a few sessions and things, yeah. but... Um, have you heard about the that Roy Haynes used to have a quartet playing at Slugs in the with 60s Wayne. with Wayne? Yeah, and Cecil McVie, was it? I think so. I only saw, you know, Edward... Herbie, right? I, I'd love it to be Herbie, <laughs> but I don't know. 
uh, I, I only saw uh, saw uh, um, advertisement for it, mm -hmm. and I also talked to Marcus Gilmore about it. But oh, you, you yeah. haven't heard anything about that. I have. No, I've never heard it. No. Ah, but, man. But that would be cool. That would be cool. I, I, I'm wondering what kind of material, you know, Roy would, would bring for that kind of band, or would he, ask Wayne to bring some songs, or you know, curious about that. I heard his band a lot over the yeah. years. Did you Back. get to meet him also? Talk to him? Yeah. Yeah. First mm. time I met. Oh, I, yeah, this is, oh, this is going to be a good story then. Um, uh, first time I met Roy, uh, is that the, um, uh, Notre Dame jazz festival. So I was at William Patterson college and there was a competition for small groups, big jazz festival and a competition. So we went with a group from our college, to, um, to, to play, to compete. And uh, the judges were uh, Charlie Hayden, Roy Haynes, uh, Frank West, Red Brodney, and uh, Larry Novak. Mm. Uh, who, I don't know if you know Gary Novak. I know Gary his, Novak, yeah. But that's his father. So, mm -hmm. uh, um, so that was the, those were the judges, and um, so I was already, you know, a huge Roy Haynes fan and and uh, heavily under his influence as well at that point. But uh, so Roy's there, and so we play, and you know, afterwards we get a chat with the judges a little bit, and uh, I, I meet Roy, and pretty much the first thing he says to me he says. Ain't many of you redheaded motherfuckers. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I've been around Roy a few times, and I yeah, I got to know him a little bit. Just yeah. I mean, uh, one instance was in Japan when uh, uh, with the Bud Powell band with Chikoria. You know what I mean? Um, when yeah. he was playing the Bud Powell tribute thing. They were playing in Japan and I was playing there also with Schofield. But Chick had written an orchestral piece um, that was going to be played with a symphony there with basically the Bud Powell group plus the symphony. But Roy didn't want to, he didn't want to do the orchestra thing. I, yeah, I was asked to do it. Yeah. So, but I remember Roy was hanging out there and, and he came to actually he came to the rehearsal and he was kind of sitting out there. <laughs> so I got to know him a little bit. You've been working so long with uh, Bill Carruthers mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm wondering how that started and also how that led to you guys playing duo. How did you guys meet and how did that evolve into that kind of uh, chemistry that you have together? Um, I think we were both pretty young musicians in, in you know, in New York. Uh, in the would have been the very early 90s, I think. I had heard of him, and and uh, but he called me up and asked me to come over and play a session one day at where he was living in Brooklyn uh, uh, with a bass player, and we played. So, uh, so that was that was fun. Uh, but I don't think we didn't play for a little while after that, or but then we played some more, you know, and um, you know, just informally. And then at some point, uh, Bill Bill wanted to do a recording. Actually, he wanted to do a, uh, um, a record. And I think he 
basically produced it himself and it ended up coming out um but um with Gary Peacock oh home row which became home row yeah. yeah but it didn't come out like in that form till many many years later but yeah. it was actually done in the maybe I don't know 90 92 93 somewhere in there so uh so I did that record with Bill and I really really loved how that came out and thought he played great uh, and obviously he had some different stuff than I'd heard, you know, that every, when most of the other players in New York were going for, um, he just had some personal stuff that was different yeah. and also, uh, harmonically very free, which I liked a lot and, and having listened to some different types of music, like, you know, I wasn't. I wasn't into Messian yet, but I had, you know, I was into like Stravinsky and Bartok and stuff like that. So the way, the way Bill played appealed to me. And um, mm. I think it was a little bit after that, I think it was my suggestion actually that we, that we play some trio without drums. I moved out bass, you know, mm -hmm. so so we started playing with Anton Dinner, a saxophonist that I knew from uh, my college days. That's uh, the Ghost Ship record? Yeah, and we did one before that uh, called oh. Aban Abandon All Hope that I don't know if it's available now. but I, I haven't heard of that, no. There were actually two records, but the, the first one was, you know, it's something Bill printed up himself, so it was maybe not distributed in a formal sense, I'm not sure. So... Uh, we did that group, uh, and then we also did some duo, but, um, Bill was very good at playing without bass, um, and, and very free with that, and, and also liked the lower register of the piano a lot, which sort of fills up the space in a, in a different way. Yeah. So, um, and I think Bill avoided the common traps of guys, you know, a lot of people at that time trying to play like Herbie and McCoy and yeah. different things and, and Bill had something different so uh, and great ears and then uh, when I did I guess it was Snide Remarks yeah I, 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 I had his sound in mind and, and uh, I mean if I had chosen a, a different piano player it would have been very different so uh, he brought something personal to it, which, which I thought gave it a more unique sound. Mm. I love that you went back and played with him for the Space uh, Squid record. That you used him again. Yeah, I really yeah, love it was, that. Yeah, that it, it, was that it keeps continuing your your thing. You know. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, yeah. In some ways, that record was a little bit like almost the same band as Telepathy. Yeah. You know, I mean, not really, but it was similar. I mean, Seamus and, and um, Bill together, for instance, uh, a little bit similar conceptually. Yeah. Um, I, I think any time I work with Bill, I want to give him a good amount of freedom to do his thing, you know. Yeah. That's a sign right. of a great band leader, you know, recognizing somebody's uh, talent and uh, also singularity 
in a way and then mm -hmm. uh, exposing him and also exposing that special thing that he has and finding a finding a scene for that i think that's what a great band leader does you know i love that it's cool thank you thank you thanks for listening <laughs> sure um there... how about that trio with walter smith and larry grenadier are you going to try to tour a little bit with that or i don't know um it might be it might be difficult to get those guys together for a tour because uh, they're busy you know but i might try uh i'm trying to get a recording out that i did in late february so i don't know how it's going to come out yet mm -hmm. i mean in terms of release it's it's already done and it's mixed uh, in april of last year a week at the village vanguard mm. and uh we're going to do a week coming up here in about two months at the village vanguard that's i mean that's the thing i'm working on as a leader right now is doing yeah. that and and you know actually for the first time in being a band leader it's it's playing without any piano or keyboards mm. i'm really enjoying that uh and uh, i mean different space that there is you know sure yeah you know there's either more space to fill up or if you know without a without a chordal instrument or i can just leave the space and you just hear more space in the music which mm. is be nice too but we're really liking playing with walter and larry together so yeah i think it's a good combination so uh we were talking about you know chemistry of bands yeah. and such and for me this one is it's happening for me <laughs> maybe maybe as a last uh last question um i'm obsessed with the topic of getting inspired or getting you know finding inspiration yeah um so i'm always asking people uh and i want to ask you what do you do when you feel not inspired when you feel, um, you know, when you feel like maybe also self-critical in a way, like yeah. uh, everybody has that, I'm, I suppose, like, oh, I, I can't play or uh, all I do is going to that one direction or anything. I, I mean, that's the stuff I'm thinking at times. And mm. I'm always trying to look for new stuff or new ways to get out of that feeling. Um, and and you know getting out of that hole and then finding new stuff how how do you go go about that when you maybe have similar thoughts or or maybe you don't but you still have something that um um yeah that can give you inspiration well if i'm feeling down about music or my plane or something i might just i might i might step away for a little bit or you know i mean if we're just talking about a particular day you know i've just you know i i've had i've had days recently where i've gone in the in the practice room with the drums and and realized that i really didn't feel like playing you know that i was sort of forcing myself to do it yeah uh so sometimes i just stop and i don't play or I, I take a walk you know sometimes just taking a walk is good uh, but, and that's a very simple thing to do but um you know i might come back and i might feel different or i feel different the next day you know or there's all the different things that affect how you feel about how you play on a given day and your particular mood and whatever but uh fortunately that doesn't happen to me day after day after day which would be a drag you know yeah 
I, I, you know, I have days when I'm more inspired and less inspired and, um, um, I don't know, sometimes just taking a little time off can be helpful too. Mm. I think, you know, uh, sometimes when I come back from tour, for instance, uh, like a fairly long tour, if I don't have something coming up, I might, you know, I might not play the drums for two, three weeks if I don't have to, mm. you know, I might yeah. not. So, but it's some, especially I think as musicians get get older, it's good to rest the ears a bit, yeah. you know, because a lifetime of sound and dealing with sound, um, especially I'm a drummer, so, you know, yeah. <laughs> so I have to be careful about that. But um, sometimes I, I might, you know, I might listen to music for an inspiration. I might, instead of working so hard on what I'm doing, I might just decide to listen to some music for a day rather than try to create it, you know? Okay, man. Uh, I'm, I really um, want to thank you for, for doing this and taking the time. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for your interest. I'm, I'm flattered and, you know, enjoy your work. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Pablo Head Investigates. If you like the interviews, subscribe to this channel. Also, you can check out all my previous interviews on YouTube for the respective video versions. They will slowly be posted here as well. To be notified for new interviews, you can subscribe to my newsletter on my website at pablohelt.com or find me on social media. I'm at Pablo Held Music on Instagram and on Facebook. Doing these interviews is a lot of fun, but also lots of work that I'm doing in addition to my touring and teaching schedule and my family life. So if you would like to support the interview series, please consider donating at steadyhq.com slash That's steadyhq.com slash Thanks for listening.